Today, we uh, invite and we reserve this seat for a generation that has become known as the Millennials. They've actually gone by a number of different descriptions. If you've heard these, these all refer to the same group, Generation Y, Generation Next, Echo Boomers, 9-11 Generation, the Selfie Generation, Generation Me, kind of settled into this term, the Millennials, and um, basically refers to a group that was born, they vary in the dates, you'll hear one set here, somewhere from the late 70s or early 80s, ending somewhere by around 2000, as late as 2004. If you're born in that group, you're generally known as a millennial. And as generations go, this group has some distinguishing features, like all generations. And rather than explain those to you, I want to just defer to the Pew Research Center, which did an enormous study on this generation and came away with very, very clear, definitive um, descriptions. And this is uh, one of the directors of the Pew Research Center, and he is going to give you, this just for a couple of minutes, this is a, an overview of what those are. Take a look. The millennials are a generation, uh, we define them as having been born after 
you hear that description and react to it saying that that's a positive, generally positive description or generally negative description probably indicates whether you are a millennial or not. There is a, there's some clear distinctions. And, and you take the sum of that and what the Pew Research people said was, if you want to just put it in a sentence, this is what's true of this generation. Racially diverse, economically stressed, and politically liberal. They are, as you heard, the least religious, least trusting of institutions, most highly educated, most in debt to student loans of any generation in history. They've been marked as having low economic hope, being tech-dependent if not addicted, lazy, entitled, and unaffiliated, religiously, politically, and maritally. Okay. If, we, if that's, that, that is the, you know, they always say that, that this next, the next generation is going to take, is, the future belongs to them. So what does that mean? Where are we headed? And what might God say about that? You might be surprised a little bit of what might God might say. I want to invite you to the book of Ecclesiastes. We were there once before in this series, middle of the Bible. If you have a Bible or access to one in any form, I invite you to take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and see something to, to answer the question. If God wanted to say something about what you just heard described or to them or for them, what might he point to? I want to give you three just kind of uh, umbrella statements today about this and invite you to think about it from the perspective of what God might have to say. And the first of these is going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Here's the first statement. This is what my, I, God might want to say to a to generation that's coming up with these distinctions and these perspectives, and that's this. There are some things that are true in every generation. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 4. Now, let me frame this for you because the writer of Ecclesiastes is a very earthy, gutty book. It's going to be honest, really honest with life. It's no no pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's saying, look, this is how life really is under heaven. And we saw from before that that there's not a lot of hope in this book until you get to the end. It it gives some perspective. But it it describes this, and it says, verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 1, what does man gain from, or that's verse 3, from all his labor which he toils under the sun? Verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, every turning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Aren't you glad you came today? Isn't that encouraging? I heard somebody say once that basically it's saying, look, the world there's some things that change in the world, but basically you're dealing with the same world and the same issues for, uh, under heaven that have always been. And it, it goes on. His son, I heard, heard it said that the sun goes up, and the sun, it, it goes up and down. The wind goes round and around. The streams flow on and on, and it's all wearisome. It's just basically the same stuff. There are some things that are true in the world regardless what generation you're in. There's really nothing new under the sun. And so we know that's true, don't we? I mean, you've seen it in your lifetime. You see pictures from when you were in eighth grade and what you wore 
And if you're in eighth grade, get ready because it's coming. And 20 years later, you say, why did anybody let me walk out in public? Like that is the most ridiculous costume. Why would anybody dress like that? And sure enough, another generation comes. And it's like, look at this cool stuff we got. And it's like, I wore that. Lapels get bigger and then they get smaller. Ties get wider and then they get narrower. T- shirts get tucked in and then they get untucked. And jeans are skinny and then they're loose and the big stuff is big and then it's little. And we just hats and no hats. And it's, it's, it's like a fable. We, it, we, every generation comes up with new stuff and all the old people go, I had that. If I had to hold on to my wardrobe from the 70s, I could make a lot of money right now. I am waiting. I'm just waiting for the elevator shoes to come back, man. I loved I was six foot tall for a short period of time. It was nice. Of course, everybody else was six six, but you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Here's something that's true about every generation. Every, every, every generation inherits a world that is worse in many ways than the generation before it. Every generation. Every generation has cause to say, look what a mess you made for us. And we do. My generation said it. My parents' generation said it. This generation says it. Every generation sees corruption and failure and problems and has reason to distrust the generations before them. It's not new. It's going to happen again. And there's a a reason for that. Ecclesiastes 3.15 just kind of summarizes. This phrase gets used over again. Whatever has already been, has already been, what will be, has been before, and God will call the past to account. Now, there's an important principle there. There's some accountability for that. It's not lost on him, but there's a reality of the world you live in. It's not going to get any better. You know why? There's a theological reason for it. You, we, every generation can say, rally the troops, we're going to get better, but there's a reason why that hasn't happened and it won't happen. But you know what? We still try, don't we? This is, I'm going to, here's another video. This is called Generation We, a group of people who are trying to rally the millennial generation to make a statement and rise up. Take a look. I'm one. 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 For the past 40 years. The political and social Okay, that last girl frightened me. <laughs> we get it. Every generation has done it. Every generation has said, there are things wrong. This, you screwed it up for us. And we are going to rise up and we're going to do something about it. But there is a theological reason why that is true in every generation. It has to do with the fall of the world and the fall of mankind. The fall of the entire cosmos because of sin. And God made very, very clear statements about that when he, taught, he says in his word that there's, something, there's a reality of the world you get that every generation is born into. It is broken. It is irreparably broken. 
And it wasn't necessarily one generation that broke it, except for the first one. But there is a curse on the globe. And, and the Bible is going to use a word when it talks about the world. A lot of times it uses this word in the Greek for world that isn't just talking about planet Earth. It includes planet Earth, but it's talking about the, all the systems within it, the ecosystems within it, and also the relational and the political and, and the moral systems within it. And it, when it talks about the world, it says there's something broken with your world. You can't do, watch out for it. Don't let it poison you. And don't think that you can rise up and repair it. This is what Romans 8 says about it. The entire creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Okay, yeah, yeah, we want glorious freedom. That's what we want. There's a hope for that. We know, though, that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. That was written 2,000 years ago, and it's still groaning. This world physically groans. Every day there are earthquakes and there are volcanoes and there are storms. It is groaning because it's not in its perfect condition. Your body groans the older it gets. Some of you are groaning at this moment. Society groans. Political systems groan. There is something wrong. The reason is because it's in this perpetual state of decay. The creator of it knows it. He has a redemption plan in mind. But that redemption plan will not be enacted solely by political movements or the will of a new generation that undoes all the wrongs or that rebels and rises up and unifies. Now, try it. That's fine. But understand that there are limitations to it because of its innate spiritual condition. Correction is possible, but the correction doesn't happen by engaging the systems of the world. And that's behind some of what this passage in 1 John 2 says when it says, don't love the world. It's not just worldly immoral stuff it's talking about. It's the whole systems of the world. Don't become committed to them as a, as a way to produce what you want in your life or anything in the world. If anyone does that, the love of the Father, of God the Maker, is not going to be moving them, not going to be working with them, within them. Jesus came and he said, and he kept at, people kept asking him, why don't you try to change things in the system? Why don't you create? And he says, oh, I am. I'm going to bring a restored kingdom. He talked all that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is among you. But then he, he threw him a curve by saying, the kingdom of heaven isn't going to come from your power rising up against Rome or anybody else. The kingdom of heaven is going to transform the world from the inside out of individuals, from their heart. Jesus said, look, you want, you want remedies, you've got to go, you got to look at the heart. You've got to look at your heart. What, what, in Mark 7, he said, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From within, out of a man's heart, of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils, you know where they come from? They don't come from a previous generation. They don't come from the society or the people in power. That's not the, the core source of this. They come from inside, and that's what makes a man unclean. And so Jesus told the Pharisees, you are trying to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, 
clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. 1 John 2 goes on to say the world, that whole system, that everything that we see and we inherit, that system and its desires are going to end. They, they will pass away. But it's, a, it's the one who does the will of God who is going to find life, who's going to live forever. There is nothing new under the sun. These generations, Ecclesiastes says, they're gonna, they come and go day after day after day, year after year, decade after decade. Oh, the styles change. But you know what? The hearts within it are in the same condition. The brokenness remains. And it is a system that will continue to decay. The second law of thermodynamics will apply not just to the material universe, but to the systems of the world. Until such time as God does something. And he'll start it in the heart of a person. See, he doesn't, there's a day coming when Jesus will return. And I believe that. He's going to physically return. He will establish a kingdom. And he will people that kingdom with those who have put their trust in him from their hearts. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. He will bring it. But where that starts is what God does on the inside of a person. When he he spoke through the prophets about what was coming, and they kept saying, oh, our kingdom, this is when when Israel was was being captive, and when they were being demoralized, and they said, when is God going to restore the way it's supposed to be? And God talked about how he would do it. He said, oh, it's coming. But here's how it's going to come, and this is how I will do it, Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you, look at this, a new heart. That's what the world needs. A new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. That's what we've got. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There are some things that are going to be true in every generation. If God were speaking to the millennial generation, perhaps he might say, try to undo the wrongs societally, fine, but understand that the whole system is, can, can only be repaired by somebody outside your generation who's going to do it from the inside out in you. Do you want change? That's where it's going to start. Here's the second umbrella statement. That's the first one. There are some things that are true in every generation. Now, There are also some things that the millennial generation would do well to keep in mind. There's a list of prevailing qualities, and you heard some of them. Here's some statistics about the current uh, generation of people born about 1980 to 2000 among us and in in our culture. As you heard, they're unattached to organized or large institutions. There is a real um, aversion to that which is big, and organized and institutionalized. 50% now describe themselves as politically independent. 29 to almost 30% say they're not affiliated with any religion whatsoever. There's another trait is that they're, they're burdened by debt. This generation came of age right at the time of the Great Recession in our country. And you heard it said that this is the first generation whose economic prospects are less, considered less than any, the generation before them. That's the first time in American history that that has been true. Two-thirds of recent bachelor's degree recipients have outstanding student loans. And those student loans have an average debt of right between twenty-seven dollars and $30,000 a person. Some are much more. 
They are, I'll just read this, they're the first generation in the modern era to have higher levels of student loan debt, poverty and unemployment, and lower levels of wealth and personal income than their two immediate predecessor generations, the Gen Xers and the baby boomers. They are in no rush to be institutionalized in marriage either. As you heard, this 26% of this this generation is married by the same age. The 48% of baby boomers were married. 65% of the generation before that, which has been called the silent generation, were married. And this group is really, really distrustful. 19% of millennials say that most people can be trusted. 19%. People are generally trustworthy. 31% of Gen Xers said that. 37% of the silent generation, 40% of boomers said that people are generally trustworthy. There's a real skepticism there. And so... So there's a whole lot of throwing out institutions and throwing out historical things and standards that have existed before. And as a result, this group has been called people who don't have as much commitment to workplaces and, and haven't developed work ethics as much. And, and sometimes the, prospect of the, the lack of a prospect of financial stability puts this generation in a position where they don't feel motivated. So you've got a whole lot of people, and some of you know this because some of you are millennials and you have a, a role in the workplace. Some of you supervise millennials. And see if you can relate with this spoof kind of thing that was done, video, that was done about how to supervise millennials in the workplace. Take a look. Executive manager of data consulting. Yes, 
We do know millennials can actually be exceptionally creative, which reasons why they didn't make work. These expensive excuses are normal to them, and they will be to you too. Sure, that's a normal thing. Hi, um, I know I only get 10 days paid vacation, but that wouldn't count as one week Argentina being surf here twice, right? No, why would it? That's it. Any questions? Why even hire millennials? Oh, right. Well, millennials comprise 19% of the workforce. If none of them worked and their parents supported them, it would cripple our economy and capitalism. So, unfortunately, it's your civic duty to employ them. Trust us. We want to fire them all, too. But we can't. <laughs> All right, that's as sarcastic as we're going to get today. <laughs> now, to whatever degree that reflects some things that have changed, standards, commitments, uh, approach to life, there are some things that it would do well for this generation to kind of hear from God because there, it's one thing to say that institutions have corruption in them. We know that. Governments have corruption in them. There are flaws in, in systems. There are flaw, and there are flaws in, in long-held uh, mores of societal norm. When you consider what you do with them, keep this in mind, that there are some things that exist and institutions that are there because they reflect a universal truth that is still true for humanity there's still value in there so to the millennials god might say be careful that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater." There, there's god god's character the one who made us and god who never changes reflects himself in human design including some things that there are some timeless qualities about and those will get lost if we establish the ways and the institutions around them See, millennials describe themselves in certain ways. Now, look, this, this is a description of, of millennials describing themselves. The top, if, let me just explain the bar graphs. There's a quality on the left, and on the right are the, are the four most recent generations, and, ha, and what degree of them would call themselves this, all right? So millennials are on the top, and then Gen X, boomers, and the silent generation. And so words like, would you call yourself patriotic? Millennials, 12%, whereas the silent generation is 73. Would you call yourself responsible? And you see the, I, I won't go over the, all the, the numbers with you, but you see the tendencies here. Would you call yourself hardworking? Would you call yourself willing to sacrifice? Would you call yourself religious, moral, self-reliant, compassionate, and politically active? And every one of those millennials have graded themselves as significantly less attached to those types of realms, those qualities, or those institutions as the generations before them. If that happens, and if that's true, there's, there's a baby that gets thrown out with the bathwater. Because there are things that are true about those character qualities that aren't just human evolution. They are parts of the character of the maker. God himself calls on us to an ethic to be hardworking. God himself is a working God. God himself is a responsible God. God himself is willing to sacrifice. God himself has morals. 
and invites people to reflect his character in how they live. Here, millennials need to understand this, that marriage is a God instrument. God made it. God designed it. And he uses it to accomplish things in people's lives. There is good in it, even though it may have been messed up by people who've gone before you. Hard work is actually a necessity for achievement for the mandate God gave to move into our world and to bring it into order in his, on his behalf. The ethic of hard work is something that reflects the character of God, not just the standards of a generation. Commitment and aligning with others is something that reflects the character. When Jesus called his body together, he called them to commitment. He said, count the cost of following me. Sacrifice in order to follow me. Align yourselves with people. Come into a body of people who make a commitment to each other. Be a, be a group of people who make and keep promises. That is not something that is just something, an old generation thing. That's something that reflects the very nature of God. God makes promises. God keeps his promises. God has commitments, and he, he makes covenants, and he asks us to reflect his character in what we do with each other. You reject those institutions or those activities. You reject the very nature of God as you were created to reflect it. And so every generation needs to come to an awareness of something. There are some things the millennial generation would do well to keep in mind. It needs to come to an awareness that you inherited a world that may or may not be the kind of world you wanted, but it is not productive to stand back, fold your arms, and say, well, then I'm not worrying about it because you messed it up. As a creation of the Most High God, you are called to be someone who steps up and chooses to take responsibility for who you are and where you are rather than, going, rather than sitting back and blaming the past for where you are. I love this. I'm going to show you one, uh, this one other video. And this is a group of millennials talking about millennials, talking about all these stereotypes that are given. And, and somebody who's a producer for Huff, the HuffPost Live, which is from the Huffington Post, her name is uh, Jenny Churchill. She is a millennial, and she gives an answer that kind of throws everybody. But listen to what she says in response to this question. Um, so I am super curious to see what you guys have to say. If you've dealt with any of that criticism. avoid the fact that part of the criticism is true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that a lot of our generation doesn't pay attention to things that are going on. They're so self-absorbed. They're on social media constantly talking about themselves. However, you can't avoid the fact that we've also been thrown into this situation that we didn't create. And when we were young, we were told, you can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want to be. And you're special. And everyone wins. And then we got out there and found out that that's not true. But my problem here is that, okay, we didn't create this situation, but we've been given it. And at a certain point in time, I think millennials need to wake up and realize that no one else is going to fix this for us. We have to be the ones to step up and make the difference, whether or not we, we created the situation. Do you hear that now? That reflects something that God said. There were a group of people in the years after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven who were waiting for Jesus to return because he said he would. They were convinced he was going to do it in their lifetime, and they started to get lazy, started to kind of feel a little entitled. They kind of stopped making investments. They stopped taking responsibility. They stopped working. Kind of, kind of like just, well, you know, it's all going to be over. 
So we're off the hook. And God, through the Apostle Paul, gave some very, very pointed words to them to say, you are still someone who carries the character of God with you and the God who takes responsibility, the God who works, who God, a God who um, engages with his world. And so, he, so he, he writes this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Well, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? If a man's not going to work, he shouldn't eat. What's the principle there? There's a value that God has. It reflects his assignment and his nature for us. Don't just sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. If you don't work, don't expect to eat. We hear that some among you are idle. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Settle down, earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what's right. Can I give you just some straight talk? If you're in this generation, the millennial generation, blame and accusation won't change your situation. Self-absorption and non-commitment won't get you very far in the world you inhabit. Entitlement won't deliver what you need or what you want. Moral laxity, deciding to change it for yourself, will not change what is right and what is wrong and what's best. Because God doesn't change, and every generation is asked to reflect His character. So there are some things that that group needs to do, would do well to keep in mind. And now let me, let me turn it a little bit and say this to those of us who aren't in the millennial generation and to all of us. There are also a handful of things that everyone would do well to learn from the millennial generation. One of those things, I'm going to say these really quickly because I want to focus on the last one. And I'm going to invite you to one more passage. It's in John chapter 15 in the New Testament. Got your Bible turned to John 15. One of those things, it comes out through this whole uh, digital involvement networking thing that is so intrinsic to this generation. You heard the description that there's a virtual community that gets formed. People find each other. They form their tribes, they said. There is a very biblical principle there that other generations need to learn because a whole lot of us in other generations have... Have, have become isolated. We don't talk about our lives. We don't share our lives. We go into our homes and the garage doors go up and the garage doors go down. We don't know our neighbors. We go to our work and we do our work and we might have a handful of conversations, but it's about work. And we watch television and we, and, and we maybe spend time on the internet and that's it. But this, this generation has formed relationships through some of the digital connections. There are people who have found each other and they communicate with each other. They're in, in some form of community. Now, it may not be face-to-face all the time. It might not even be voice-to-voice, but there is an innate understanding that's coming out of this generation that I need to be part of a tribe. There are people who, I need to feel, find people of like mind with me. I'm, I, I'm, I should not be alone in this journey. Jesus talked about that. And Jesus, in John 15, talked to his disciples getting ready to go to the cross and talked to them about how he designed them to work and what the relationships were supposed to be like. And and he says, look at uh, 1 John uh, 15, verse 12. Here's my command, he says, to you. Love each other as I have loved you. That is not just have warm and fuzzy feelings. 
as have a covenantal connection with other people, a sacrificial connection with a group of other people. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends. He's given an example. You're my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. There's a community aspect of this. I call you my friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. He's setting an example. The things we learn from God, we share with other people around us. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and pointed you that you bear fruit, fruit that'll last, and then the Father will give you whatever you want. Ask in my name. This is my command. Love one another. The millennials understand the power of connection. And there's a call that they, they can issue to the rest of us to say, if you have isolated yourself, if we're going to talk about this. I'm going to say more about this next week in a new series. If you have isolated yourself so that no one knows your secrets, no one knows your aches, no one knows your plans or what you're considering or what, what's going on in your life, you, you're, there's a violation of the character and a commandment of God in your life that needs to be filled. The millennials get this. They get that there's that I'm not alone, that there are others. And yes, it might be self-absorbed. And yes, it may be, uh, here's my selfie, what's yours look like? But there's still a connection that says, I know you're there, we've got each other backs, we're walking through this thing together. God made that to be true in us. That craving is coming from the heart that God put in us to have what he created uh, us to function with. Here's the second of those uh, uh, traits traits that we can learn from the millennial generation. And this is almost ironic. Because there's such a disdain for, for the uh, economy and for institutions. But this is what's true of this generation. That generally speaking, they have a positive hope for the future. This generation has a higher positive hope for the future than the generations that came before it. So in spite of reaching adulthood in the middle of a recession that just costs them so much, in spite of seeing institutions and wars and things that demoralize them, the stats say that they're... of the millennial generation believes that the best years, their best years, and our country's best years are still ahead of it. There's hope there. That's a higher percentage than any other generation before them had over the last hundred years at the same age. We need to learn from that. Because you know what? The older I get, the more cynical I get. Is that true for you? The more, dist- the more I walk, look around, I just shake my head. The more curmudgeonly I get, the more I feel like I don't know where this is going, but it's not a good place. But you know what? When God gets involved in people's lives, he calls us to something else. He calls it hope. There is a hope that comes that's anchored not to what our government's going to do or what our generation is going to do, but what God is going to do. There's a hope. The close, th- I believe this, and I believe this for me. This is hard for me to say because it, it reveals something about me. The closer and more intimate I am, the more understanding I have of God, the more optimistic I will be about the future. And if I'm walking around cynical all the time, that says something to me about the temperature of my soul, about where my heart is with God. Because when God gets involved, he brings hope. He, the, the hope, and it's not just the hope of heaven. Now, he, here's what Hebrews 6 says. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. 
He confirmed it with an oath. So God wants something to be clear to people, and he promised it. He, he made an oath about this, that there is a future to them. God did this so that by two unchangeable things being true, in which first it's impossible for God to lie, we who have uh, fled to take hold of the hope offered us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The more I am aware that I am connected with a good God who's going a good direction in my life, the more optimistic I can be about what's happening. I, I need to learn that from the millennial generation. Now, they may or may not know where the source is coming from, but they have learned that there's a reason to be optimistic. And that reason is that if I'm anchored to the oath of God, that God has promised that my life will bring glory to him and good to me regardless, that our world has a destination where it's going, and that destination is he is going to redeem it. He is going to bring his kingdom. He is going to prevail. That ignites a hope within me that extends even to the way I live now. It's not just, yeah, yeah, in heaven someday. Can I just read you this psalm? It's Psalm 27, 3. And this is a psalm that I've had to come back to many, many times to remind myself that it's not just, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Won't that be great? Let's get this over with. Listen to what the psalmist David says in this. Psalm 23, uh, 27, 13. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord. Look at the next phrase. In the land of the living. Not just in heaven, in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I can have confidence of this. That because I'm attached to a God and know Him personally, there's an optimistic future ahead. There can be for where your situation is. It's anchored to the promise of God, not to what a generation will do. Now, I could talk more about that, but this is where I want to land this, and I want you to really hear this. One more thing that I I need to learn and we need to learn from the millennial generation. And that is they've looked past institutional systems, but there is something that's still true of this generation, and statistics and, and surveys have said it, that they deeply want an authentic, close, intimate relationship with God. This generation longs for that. They want that. They may have rejected organized religion. They may have rejected a whole lot of the institutions, but there's something they really want. They want life with God. A millennial, who, who's, who's an author, Sky Jathani, who is uh, well-known in those circles, he's senior editor of Leadership Journal. He wrote about that, and he, and he distinguished uh, four different phrases that different generations have approached God with. And he talked about a generation that said they, get their, they live their life from God, from God, detached kind of uh, deism, that basically, yes, my life comes from God, thank you very much, I, I believe that there's a God, and I got my life from Him, and then I go live my life. And there's been generations of, of even believers who tend to do that. Life, they see it as life from God. There's another generation that said they see their life as coming life under God, meaning God has rules, and He's serious, and He'll spank you. God will get you. You need, to, uh, you need to obey his rules, buddy. That's what you got to do. So you, you, you live your life under God. You make sure you comply. You make sure you do what he says. And, you, and that's the extent of your relationship. As I say these, some of you are going to think of people you know, and you'll think of yourselves. Some live life from God. Some live their lives under, have lived their lives under God. He talks about other generations that have talked about living life for God. 
Because there's a call to sacrifice, and there's a call to accomplish stuff, and there's a lot of social activism, and there's a lot of stuff that we do in the name of God, and we're doing good because God has said to do it. And so we're out there, and we're active, we're, we're pursuing things, and we're doing it for God. I'm doing this for you. And Sky just thought, thought he said that this generation, more than any other generation in recent history, has said that they, he wrote an entire book called With. Because he, because he said this generation is saying, we want to see what it looks like to have life with God. What does it look like to have God with me, accompanying me, involved in what I'm doing, to have a personal connection with him? And, and he has said this generation is responding to simple things. They're rejecting churches that go, hey, come out to, uh, we're going to start an aerobics class, and we're going to do this. We're going to give you five steps to become a new parent. We're going we're gonna, we're gonna to do all this extra stuff. And, and what they're doing instead is they're coming out to times where it's just prayer. Millennials are just showing up to pray. This is what Sky Jathani said. What this generation is longing for is exactly what the church has always been designed to give them. They're looking for genuine communion with God. They want to be transported from the world they occupy to the presence of God. If you want to reach millennials, the answer is very, very simple. Just be the church again and stop trying to be everything else. Jesus talked about that in John 15. In verse 1, he says, I'm the true vine. My father's a gardener. And he says, and you are the branches. He says, verse 4, remain in me. Keep your branches connected to me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I'm the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains connected, connected with me, and I with him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The millennials have, have a yearning that we need to understand and feed. That what God wants in your life, in my life, more than he wants us to have, understand that our life came from him, more than, than, than trying to behave so that because our life is under him, more than doing things for him, God made us for relationship with him. And I ask you, which of those, this is a good discussion question for this week in our cell groups, which of those four tends to be the way you operate? Which is the way you have perceived God or you're perceiving Him right now? That you just got life from Him, that life is under Him, that life is for Him, or life with Him? And God would say to this generation, what you're yearning for, I can give you. Come to the foot of the cross. Come personally, directly to God who offers relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And let's walk through the life together and then we'll see what he does to accomplish his purposes and bring his kingdom in your heart and in your life. Pray with me.